If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this January 6, 2019. I am John Ziegler. I am the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you had a good uh, Christmas uh, break. Uh, A lot of things happened in the news and actually involving this podcast over the the Christmas break. Uh, Before we get to all that, in our number two, our guest this week is a fantastic one. He is Brad Thor, the thriller novelist and once a, a potential GOP presidential candidate to go up against Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, You will not want to miss our number two, so make sure you check that out. Uh, As far as what occurred during our break, we almost actually did another podcast just after uh, Christmas, but we weren't quite able to make it work, partially because of all the news that occurred, and some of which actually uh, related to this uh, podcast, at least our last episode of the podcast. So let me let me go back in time and, and rewind here. And um, personally, uh, that last uh, podcast of 2018 was uh, particularly memorable because we had not one but two guests. One of our guests was my daughter, Grace Ziegler. Now, uh, Grace is now six years old, but she's been on uh, the old radio show and in the on the podcast numerous times. You may recall her. Oh, for for this. It's costing money. And for this. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Yeah, and that was back when she was like uh, three or four. But she's a much different person now that that she's uh, six years old. And uh, she came on the podcast to talk uh, at first about Christmas and about Santa Claus and uh, and my struggles with how to deal with the Santa Claus issue. But in her mind... She came on the podcast to promote her Nutcracker Ballet that she was going to do the next day at our uh, local park uh, in Southern California where we live and where they're, you know, during the summertime they have concerts in the park. And so she's seen those and she's seen people up on that stage. And so she had decided she had gotten the idea that she was going to do her own version of the Nutcracker Ballet. Now, this is uh, noteworthy because she does not do ballet she has no talent nor training in ballet although she tries uh very hard and she does love it uh and she got the idea that she was going to do this uh ballet and and 
my wife was against the concept of enabling her on this, but I thought it was a good idea, mainly because she had put so much work into this. Not just in the concept of doing it, and, and, and frankly, it showed some guts to me that she even wanted to go out on the stage in the middle of the park and and do this this nutcracker. But she had even spent quite a bit of time creating posters—not real posters, but in her mind, posters—for uh, advertising this. Now, we didn't actually put the posters out because, you know, obviously, it would no one would have cared, and she didn't even put a time and place on it. But in her mind, she had created these posters to promote this ballet. And in her mind, her her appearance on the podcast was a way of promoting her her ballet. And I explained to her, this is a national podcast with a small audience. There's nobody in our small town that's going to be listening to this in the next less than 24 hours and is going to, without even telling them what time we're going to be there, that this is going to actually happen. But in her mind... She had done like a publicity tour for this. So we uh, we bought her a little, uh, I don't know, about a two and a half foot tall uh, nutcracker so that it could be the centerpiece of her performance. Uh, my wife was not happy about that, but that was that was my doing. And we drove her and I told her this is going to that's going to be me, mom, our daughter, Diana and her. And so we drive to the park uh, the day after the last podcast and. I swear. I mean, I I I thought we were going to have a complete meltdown because when we get to the park, she very quietly says, nobody's here. Like she was expecting there to be a crowd waiting. I don't know how because she didn't give a time <laughs> or really even a place. For, and there, but anyway, so in her mind, she was already disappointed. But to her credit, she didn't have a complete meltdown. And so... We uh, we had her do this performance of the of the Nutcracker, which I was videotaping because I figured I don't know she would want a record of this or something interesting happened. People might find it uh, uh, worthy of viewing online via Twitter, Facebook, and, and what have you. And uh, the first time she does the performance, the music stops because the music's coming from my wife's phone, and someone called my wife. So so that had to be aborted. But the second time, she made it all the way through, and, you know, she did a, as nice a job as someone with no training could possibly have done, and she was really into it. And, um, and so here's what happened at the very end of her, of her nutcracker performance, <laughs> uh, proving that no good deed goes unpunished, at least as a parent. Uh, listen carefully to the exchange that occurs when dad is really quite pleased with uh, what she had done, and that ends up backfiring horrendously. Yay! Apparently, we're not supposed to cheer. That was Grace Ziegler performing the Nutcracker. How was it? I thought it was great. What do you think, Diana? It's not the ending, and I'm quitting, and it's a cancel. We're canceling the rest of the concert. Okay. I'm sure it's Daddy's fault. Now, the best part of the video is that her, her one-year-old sister starts running after her backstage. <laughs> To try to console her, I guess. And, and mom just casually picks up the nutcracker and we move along. Uh, so so that was uh, somewhat of a disaster, although I think at last check, like over 3,000 people had viewed the thing. 
online. So far more people saw it than ever would have seen it in a packed uh, uh, park uh, for one of the concerts during the summer. But that was that was interesting. And then, of course, we had uh, Christmas. And if you were, if you listened to the to the interview with my daughter Grace, uh, her big uh, goal was to get an American Girl doll. This was her obsession. And, you know, she was counting on Santa Claus to, to bring it. And uh, shockingly, Santa did bring it, despite the fact that uh, Grace was not particularly good. Uh, I'm now convinced that Santa is counterproductive when it comes to trying to facilitate good behavior. Because I think Grace gets way too nervous during Christmas because of the concept of the gifts hanging over her head. She's actually way better behaved after Christmas than she is before. I mean, supposedly the best thing about Santa is, right, that he's, you're blackmailing your kids into good behavior. Well, that doesn't, at least does not work in my house. Uh, but she got the American Girl doll. She was super excited. And since then, she's had almost no attention, paid no attention to the American Girl doll. Almost no attention. So after all this, after a month and a half of buildup, and she's so excited, it's not even the most um, compelling gift that she got in her mind, at least not the one that she's spending the most uh, time on. But also, interestingly, I think Santa Claus is on life support. Uh, Santa Claus is in big trouble. Uh, and it's, it's, it was fascinating that Donald Trump himself uh, took a call from a seven-year-old girl, one year older than Grace, uh, on Christmas Eve, where he basically told her that Santa Claus does not exist, uh, which is really bizarre, not just because it showed how clueless Trump can be, but here's a guy who's a pathological liar who felt compelled that this was the moment that he had to tell the truth. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I mean... At least like if I was in that situation, I'm someone who's uh, been described in court by a boss who fired me once as having a pathological need to tell the truth, right? So so if, if somehow if I told a seven-year-old, which I would never do, that there was really no Santa Claus, which is essentially what Trump did, uh, that, you know, that at least be somewhat understandable. But here you have Trump, a pathological liar who cannot tell the truth about anything, Feels like this is the hill he's going to die on with regard to truth. Santa Claus not existing on Christmas Eve to a seven-year-old girl. Well, Grace has been all in on Santa for obvious reasons uh, for a very long time. You may, if you have a very good memory, uh, or she says, rememory. Uh, if you have a really good rememory, uh, you might recall this uh, particular clip. But this was a couple of years ago. One of my fa- this is my favorite uh, Grace and Santa clip. I think this was at least two years ago. This is her negotiating with Santa over her behavior before Christmas. Santa, we have a problem though. We're not sure if she belongs on the good list this year. Is she going to get on the good list? You hold on a second. Tell you what, you still have one week to be as good as possible to help your mom and dad. I'll try my best, okay? Excellent. (laughs) I'll try my best. I'm not going to promise anything I can't deliver. Is that okay? She's a better negotiator than Trump, frankly. And of course, she got what she wanted that year. But this year, we're getting a lot of questions. In fact, just even this morning, uh, Grace. (laughs) 
Grace was bringing out uh, pictures or asking for pictures of this year's Santa to compare this year's Santa to the previous year's Santa like it's the Zabruder film and comparing the texture and the size and the color of their beards. And uh, so while she's clearly she's decided that this year's Santa must not have been the real Santa. That the Santa from the couple of years prior, which was the same Santa, and unfortunately where we went, they decided to stupidly change the Santa, which is a a critical error. But uh, she's decided that this year's Santa must have been fake. Now, it's, it's interesting to compare her mentality towards Santa with the Trump cult members' mentality towards Trump because she is actually more skeptical of Santa Claus than the Trump cult member is towards Trump. She's still believing, but I think, you know, I've, I've said many times that I just want one year where, you know, she's in on this and our younger daughter, Diana, you know, has a clue. Diana was terrified of Santa. Uh, but next year will be her prime Santa year because she'll, she'll be two and a half and she'll be totally in. in. Uh, I think we still have a shot at that. But it, we're in trouble. We're, we're, we, we cannot afford any more um, uh, uh, glitches. Uh, we can have any more security breaches. We, had a, we almost had a major security breach where we <laughs> – oh, the other day we had Cyrus Narasta, my good friend, who's a filmmaker, director, screenwriter. He did The Path of 9-11 and a bunch of other movies. He has a new movie coming out in 2019. He just got back from Jordan where he was shooting – uh, his movie, and uh, incredibly stupidly, Cyrus, uh, in the middle of dinner with Grace right there, starts talking about my column that I wrote over Christmas comparing uh, Grace's belief in Santa Claus to Trump cult members' belief in Trump. And they thought it was hilarious. And I'm like, uh, 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 Cy, hello, hello, hello. <laughs> now, now, thankfully, I don't think Grace caught on to what was happening. But uh, much like her dad, she is skeptical and inquisitive, and uh, I think we're in trouble. Next year is clearly the last year uh, for Santa Claus. Um, but anyway, so that was that was um, one part of the last uh, podcast. But then the, the, the part of the last podcast that made national news was our interview with investigative reporter Michael Isakoff, who wrote uh, or co-wrote the book Russian Roulette. And I, I urge you, if you've not uh, yet, check out that in hour number two of of the last podcast from 2018, because um, Michael is a, a very smart guy and knows a lot about the the whole Trump Russia issue. Obviously, having written a book about it, and uh, and he, I would say 95 percent of the interview was very negative towards Trump. But he did say that he no longer believes that the Christopher Steele uh, dossier is necessarily credible and that he is um, cooling on the theory of Russian collusion. He hadn't 100 percent decided that it was wrong or incorrect, uh, but like much like me, that it didn't feel like the the Mueller indictments and sentencing was consistent with a, a major collusion theory, for instance, Michael Flynn recommend no jail time by Mueller. Uh, no indication that that Michael Cohen had uh, pled guilty to lying, for instance, about the Prague trip. And if if there was no Prague trip, that blows apart a huge 
element of the Steele dossier as well as a potential collusion scenario. And and so Michael was very credible and, and very honest, and I thought the interview was fantastic. And then, so here's how this thing works within the media. So I write a column on Mediaite, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, about the interview with Michael Isikoff. Now, because it's on Mediaite, it gets a certain amount of play. Most, you know, a lot of media members uh, read Mediaite, uh, which is why I write there, because I have no interest in, in being part of a cult. I, I want to actually influence these morons if I can, or at least show them up. And so... Uh, the Daily Caller, a pro-Trump uh, website, uh, sees that I have an interview with Isakoff that you know they can cherry pick to make it look good for Trump. So they do that and they put out an article. You know, Isakoff, uh, you know, blasts the Steele dossier. Well, of course, Fox and Friends then sees the article on the Daily Caller because now it's on the Daily Caller. It's been cleansed, so now it's okay because now it's been cleansed of any anything that might be anti-Trump. So now, now we got something that they can use. So Fox and Friends does a story on this, and lo and behold, who's watching Fox and Friends? You, well, you know who who was watching Fox and Friends. Correct. It was Donald Trump. So Donald Trump is watching Fox and Friends, and then he proceeds to to tweet not once, not twice, but three times about the interview with Michael Isikoff. In fact, even thanking Michael Isikoff for being an honest reporter. Now, this shows you what a bizarre world we now live in. I mean, we're, we are so through the looking glass that, that, it, that it's, it's ridiculous because here I am, I'm in a situation where I, you know, I, I, I am now responsible for Isakoff having to take the wrath of his fan base because Trump is using him for his own purposes, cherry picking an interview that was 90, 95% negative towards Trump and saying, aha, see, Isakoff believes X, Y, and Z, and this is good for me. Now, in, in, a, in a normal world, if I was responsible for the president of the United States calling someone I interviewed honest, right, that would get me an immediate thank you, right? <laughs> Right? In, a, in a rational world, in the world up until 2017, that would have been a boon for any reporter, almost under any circumstances. But because everything's upside down now, I'm actually thinking, oh, shit. Is Isakoff going to be pissed at me because I facilitated Trump complimenting him? That's, that's how effed up the whole world is right now. Now, thankfully, Isakoff was totally cool about it, and um, and and this actually ties back into Grace. <laughs> so, just to, just to tie a bow on on the Grace element of the story. So, I wake up, and you know, I'm on the West Coast, and so I'm always behind in the morning because I usually wake up around seven a.m. By that time, Trump has already tweeted, you know, numerous times, and the world has changed from the day before. And I'm I'm getting not bombarded, which is weird. You know, that's the other weird thing. You would think that the president of the United States tweeting three times about your podcast, you'd get bombarded with messages. But I didn't. But I got a few saying, hey, you're going to find this amazing that Trump did this. So Grace wakes up, uh, you know, and wants me to get her breakfast because mom's still asleep. And I'm like, OK, uh, by the way, Grace, you're, you're not going to believe this. But uh, Trump 
You know, she she knows Trump very well. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? So I say, Grace, Trump is talking about the podcast. And no lie, no exaggeration, she says to me, Trump is talking about my ballet? (laughs) And she wasn't real happy about it. (laughs) Much like Isakoff. I said, no, no, Grace, you don't have to worry about Trump talking about your ballet. Uh, no, he's talking about the other interview that I did <laughs> that particular day. So so that's the strange world that we're living in. Now, let me give you a little bit more backdrop on the Isakoff thing, which will, really is apropos of not that much except how, how bizarre my life is and how these things work. Let me tell you how the Isakoff interview actually happened and why it actually happened and how this ended up turning into a, a, a you know a fairly significant national news story because then once Trump tweets about it then of course it gets picked up everywhere here's what really happened <laughs> so my wife and I about a month ago are watching this seven hour uh, miniseries that was created by Amazon and aired on A&E called The Clinton Affair about the Monica Lewinsky Bill Clinton situation and Michael Iskoff is a major character in that uh, documentary because he had the Lewinsky story nailed before Newsweek pulled the plug on him. And as I'm watching him, I'm thinking, wow, this is, you know, I'd really like to have a conversation with him. And, you know, I knew he wrote the book about Russia, but I also know that Isakoff is a smart guy and that he happened to have been NBC's reporter on the Jerry Sandusky trial. And so I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I can get Isakoff to come on the podcast and talk about the Clinton thing and talk about the Russian thing, two subjects I know a lot about. I can show him that I'm not a crackpot. Uh, I'm not going to mention anything about Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky. Uh, But after we do an interview, because I can tell he and I are on the same wavelength, we think similarly, I can say, hey, Michael, can we have a conversation about something else? By the way, we have something in common where Newsweek screwed us both at the last second, even though Newsweek magazine is totally different than what it was back in the Clinton Lewinsky days when this happened, but it's still technically Newsweek. So this is one of those plans that, and it's very rare in my life, (laughs) that I told my wife, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get us a cuff on my podcast, and then I'm going to get to talk to him about uh, Sandusky. And uh, well, and so sure enough, he agrees to come on the podcast. Sure enough, the interview goes uh, really well. Sure enough, uh, he agrees to have a conversation with me uh, off the air. Um, but then the only f- the ironic fly in the ointment was I had not anticipated <laughs> that it would become a national news story that could potentially embarrass him. So I did not. He agreed immediately after we did the interview to have a conversation about Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky. Uh, But we hadn't set it up yet. And then Trump goes and makes a big deal about this. So I'm thinking, all right, has that now been blown apart? Thankfully, it was not. So subsequent to that, uh, I said, can we now have this conversation that we agreed to? And he said, sure. And so we did have about a 45-minute conversation, which I'm sure blew his mind because – like everybody else, he was on board. Although I never sensed he was 
like enthusiastically on board. He kind of felt like he was going through the motions on, okay, this is what everyone's saying has happened, so this is what I'm going to report for NBC because he was working for NBC at the time. And uh, and he, hear, he heard me out, which is all I ever ask. Just hear me out. And, and of course, I, it's a big lift when you're telling somebody that everything you thought you knew is totally wrong and the opposite of reality. But he, he heard me out, and he said, all right, send me your stuff. And so I sent him a bunch of stuff, and I, I'm going to give him a few. I've not contacted him since because my expectations are always very low. I mean, he's busy. This is, you know, I'm asking him to, to come to a conclusion totally against his own self-interest. Uh, and, you know, that's a long shot to begin with. But all I ever ask is hear me out and look at the stuff. And so at the very least, I got to do that because of the Isakoff interview, despite Donald Trump doing his best to screw up the the works. So that's the backstory on, on the Isakoff interview. Now, obviously, a lot has happened in the news uh, since that time. And uh, most of it has been in the realm of Trump chaos. Uh, we have uh, Defense Secretary James Mattis resigning clearly over the decision to withdraw uh, U.S. troops from Syria, which today it's now being reported via John Bolton may not even be a done deal. Now this might be conditional. Now now we may be trying to save face and never doing this, which, of course, makes me think, well, wait a minute. We just lost the defense secretary that everyone loved over this issue. He resigned over this issue. And now Trump's changing his mind? Seriously. Are you, are you kidding me? It's just flat out ridiculous. So this is how bad Trump is at this, where he loses a guy who everyone respected, who by all accounts was doing... Now, of course, Trump has now changed his tune on this because now he needs him to be a bad guy. But uh, that everyone thought was doing a great job he, he humiliates Mattis by not only uh, forcing him into resigning, but then doesn't even let him stick around for the two months that he was supposed to during the transition. And then the whole, the, the impetus for this, the withdrawal from Syria, now isn't even a done deal. I mean, this alone, this fiasco alone should cause a major scandal, especially within conservative circles, surrounding Trump. And of course it won't because it gets lost. People don't even think about this anymore because we've moved on to 18 other things. Then of course there's also a stock market crash. I mean, the, the stock market crashed in the last quarter of 2018, literally right after the president of the United States tweeted how awesome the stock market's doing because of him and how great it's going to do in the future because of him. I've retweeted this half a dozen times. The stock market has dropped about 20% since that tweet. And Trump gets no, no blame for that among conservatives, which is just baffling to me. If you take credit for something, don't you then own it when it takes a crap? I, I guess not. I mean, and, and, and you know, because Trumpsters will tell you, no, 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 no. That all happened because Democrats are taking over the House. What? Come on. Do you not understand how this works? The stock market loves gridlock. They, they, they love it. They, yeah. Are they thrilled that Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House? No. But that is not the cause of a 20% drop. 
No. Gridlock is generally good for markets. And now you've got total gridlock. But this is rationalization. This is, you know, I wrote about this for Mediate. This is, and this is what my friend Cyrus was amused by. You know, this is like when I tell, uh, when Grace asks me, well, how does Santa get down our chimney? Our chimney's really small and Santa's fat. And I said, no, 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 no. Santa doesn't go down the chimney. On the small chimneys, he has elves, his little elves go down, and they take care of things. And she goes, oh, okay. That's very similar to, well, why did the stock market go down 20%? Oh, no, 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 no. That was because Democrats are taking over the House. Oh, okay, yeah, sure, that's it. That's the ticket. <laughs> that's the same mentality. Like, you'll believe anything because you want to believe it. And, and now, and then, of course, there's the issue of the wall. I mean, and and causing a shutdown over the wall, uh, which is amazing. It's it's unbelievable. It is absolutely unbelievable that the president of the United States is shut down the government, essentially because he doesn't want to have to admit to his friends that he has a small penis. That's basically what this is. When you narrow it down to brass tacks, the president of the United States has shut down the government because he doesn't want to admit to his friends he has a small penis. I'll stand by that. Because that's what this is. This is about him and his manhood because of his promise that he made constantly during the 2016 campaign. Build that wall. 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 Yeah, yeah. how'd that work? Uh, That was never going to happen. It's not going to happen. And now he's muddying the waters in classic Trump fashion to confuse his his cult 45 base and make them think that he's fighting for them. When, in fact, he's really just desperately trying to figure a way out of this. There's no he went into this with no exit plan. None. He just did it because he feels like, you know what? With me, it's just works, you know, it's magic. So just do it. So whatever feels good at that moment, you do it, and then you figure it out later. By the way, Trump has basically said this is his philosophy because for much of his life, it has worked, partially because of luck, partially because of celebrity and and money, and, you know, the circumstances. I mean, heck, who could blame him after he somehow became president, not even trying to become president? So, I mean, there's some... Some basis for why he is under this delusion, but it, it, it won't work here. There's not going to be a wall. He's now, I don't get the, the transition from concrete to steel, how that changes anything. But now this is the big issue is no, no, we're going to make it steel. And therefore somehow this is different and more acceptable. No, it's not going to work. But Trump, it, I do believe he will escape this. With regard to his base, one, because his base is so freaking stupid and so invested. That's number one. When you're stupid and invested, then, you know, anything, anything can happen. I love the poorly educated. I mean, so so that's the, the number one context here. But to his base, and Trump knows this, as long as he is seen as continuing to fight, Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter that the wall won't be built. It's that Trump continues to fight for the wall. Even now threatening a national emergency, which is just beyond insane. It's just flat out ridiculous. And every if, Trump, if Obama ever even, 
If there was even a rumor that Obama was considering this, the, Sean Hannity would be outside of the White House setting himself on fire. Fox News Channel would be on 24-7 Fox News Alert. This would never be allowed to stand, and it's not going to happen here. But the point is, he's just needing to blame it on somebody else. I have fought for this like no one else will. And really, take the wall out of this, although the wall is a great example because I do think this is about his manhood. But really, the only thing that matters with Trump in this reality television show era is that he isn't seen as losing his balls. As long as he doesn't lose his balls, he will never, ever, ever lose that base. Now, how much is that base? There's you know, argument over what that is. I think it's about 35 36%. I, I, I don't see, as long as there's not a catastrophe, I'm talking about total economic collapse or a major terrorist attack on our, on our homeland, something to that level, as long as we're not in that realm, and as long as he's not seen as losing his balls, he will never go below 36, 37%. And frankly, you know, I, I, and I, you know, I get accused of this occasionally, and it might be an accurate uh, accusation. I'm a little obsessed with his approval ratings uh, and the numbers, and I've done numerous columns about them, but they matter because there's no way to get rid of Trump unless his numbers, his approval numbers, collapse. And I wrote a column, which I, I urge you to check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, that was facilitated by my Christmas dinner with my in-laws. And my Christmas dinner with my in-laws told me that even though we were then being told, because people have to remember, back at Christmas, we were in the midst of all this chaos, Mattis leaving, stock market crash, he, he was caving on the wall. The, the, the theory was his base is going to leave him over this, finally. And I was very skeptical of that, always, because I know Colt 45 exceedingly well. I spend way too much of my time fighting with them uh, on Twitter. Uh, and, and so I know Colt 45, and Colt 45 was not, leaving him. But there's another segment of the cult that's not like fire breathing. They're not completely mind controlled. And my in-laws fall into that category. They're good people. They're educated people. They're, they're professional people. They come from different walks of life. Some of them would even be you know, considered liberal professions like academia and movies. Uh, a couple of them even, and I'm, I'm putting their friends into this category, a couple of them even, I'm pretty sure, voted for Barack Obama in 2008. So these are, these are Trump fans who watch a lot of Fox News Channel, but they are at least theoretically persuadable. And none of this was persuading them. None of it. None of it was making a dent. In fact, they were digging in deeper. They were digging in deeper. And I said, oh, shit. Okay. All right. So this is the way it's really going to be, isn't it? This is where we are. Because, and I wrote a column saying, look, if Trump's numbers show no erosion by the first part of 2019, after this shit show over the last several weeks, including a stock market collapse, and it's important to point out, in the, in the aftermath of having gotten your ass kicked in a midterm election, Right? That's important, too, although somehow that hasn't stuck. Somehow Trump hasn't gotten blamed for that. When the evidence is overwhelming, it was all about Trump. Largest turnout in history for a midterm. Gee, I wonder what caused that. I wonder what energized Democrats to come out like they have never have 
for a midterm election. Hmm. Gee. Hmm. Could that have been Trump? Correct. Yeah, that's the reality of it. But if if he goes in to the beginning part of 2019 with his numbers the same, it's over. It's over. Those numbers are indestructible now. Again, barring massive black swan event. Economic catastrophe. Huge terrorist attack at home. Robert Mueller coming up with evidence beyond our current comprehension. That's so I'm I'm leaving room for that theoretical underlying theoretical possibility, but barring that, it ain't moving. And guess what's happened, folks? If anything, now it's a little early to still tell for sure. If anything, the evidence is his numbers have inched up in the last few weeks. They've inched up. And my theory beyond on that is well, the, most of it's statistical noise, but I think that there's a segment and I don't know what it is. It it, it might be only a couple of percentage points. It could be as high as four or 5%. I think there's a percentage of people who love the fucking chaos. They, they are the pure reality television show viewers. And as long as they're being entertained, you know, as Russell Crowe and gladiator, are you not entertained? As long as they are entertained, they are approving of Trump. And it is incredibly important to point out Trump's approval ratings today are significantly higher, statistically significantly higher than they were a year ago. Think about that. Think about everything that's transpired in the last year. (laughs) All the things that in a rational world would have destroyed a president of either party not only hasn't destroyed Trump, from an approval rating standpoint, he's actually benefited from them. And it is on that that I base my theory that there is a certain percentage that just love the entertainment. Now, yes, Trump did have the tax cuts within the last year, barely, and the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, which I supported him on vociferously, and he deserves credit for, and standing by Brett Kavanaugh. So those are two positives. But... They they could have easily been overwhelmed by a tidal wave of the negative stuff. And they have not been. And sometimes the biggest news story, I say this all the time, sometimes the biggest thing that happens in news is when nothing happens. And we are experiencing that right now. The lack of erosion of his approval numbers over the last several weeks, especially after Christmas. Got to remember, Christmas is a time, holidays, people are getting together, they're having conversations. If there was any erosion among the Trump superfan, that would have an, a domino effect because they would express that to their friends or family members. And that might then influence other Trump cult members. Uh-uh. No evidence of it whatsoever as of right now on January the 6th, 2019. And so check out my uh, my column uh, that I wrote about that, that Christmas dinner at freespeechbroadcasting.com. One of the more interesting points that I saw made about the shutdown, and this is, this is uh, highly unusual for me to think that anybody on television ever says something that's really uh, brilliant and important, 
Uh, but it's particularly uh, unusual when it comes from Chris Christie, who uh, I normally think is is a bit of a, a buffoon and a jackass um, and and uh, a Trump sycophant. But Chris Christie, and I believe it was on, and no, it was on ABC. I think it would have been on this week. Uh, a couple weeks ago, he said something really, really important about why Trump will have a problem in the shutdown. And and I am paraphrasing and, and slightly uh, uh, interpreting what he said, what I think he really meant, because he was trying to put it in as pro-Trump a way as possible. But here's what he really broke down, which is that Trump has lived his life in the realm of business. And in the realm of business, as a con man, you have an unlimited number of people to scam. You do a business deal. Everyone goes into a business deal presuming that everybody's on the up and up, right? Or at the very worst, you're just a little bit wary, but you think the contract you signed is going to protect you. Trump then lies his ass off, doesn't fulfill his obligations, sues if necessary, or gets sued and then settles, and then, once it's done, it doesn't matter that everyone's unhappy because he'll never deal with that person again. He moves on to another marker. And he uses his celebrity and his perception of money to con someone else. So the con can survive because you just move on in the business realm. In the political realm, that doesn't work. Because you're dealing with the same people. Almost exclusively, the leadership has barely changed even after a midterm election. These people have already dealt with him on other situations. They've already been lied to him in other situations. They deal with him on a daily basis. They know how incompetent he is, what a pathological liar he is how he doesn't think things through, that he claims to be a great deal maker and he's actually horrendous. He's a, he's a uh, checkers player who thinks he can play chess. That's who he is. And so even Nancy Pelosi, who's not all that brilliant, but she's good at counting numbers and she can be decent at, at political maneuvering, this is why she's the speaker despite her own her unpopularity, uh, even sometimes within her own caucus, she knows. Chuck Schumer knows. And, of course, they baited Trump into that bizarre Oval Office situation where Trump overtly took credit for the shutdown. Now, think about it just on the most basic of terms. When you're Trump in, fall, in, in, after the, in the post-election period in 2018, and you know that there's a potential shutdown looming, Right? There's two things you have theoretically in your advantage if you're Trump. One is Republicans still hold the House of Representatives. That's number one. Okay? Number two is there could at least be some ambiguity over who's to blame for the shutdown if it occurs. Right? So if you're a deal maker, number one, you make a deal when you have control of the house, right? Because inherently you lose leverage as soon as the Democrats take over the house. You lose enormous leverage. 
So if you're thinking this through, you do not allow the Democrats to take the House before you cut your deal because guess what? Your deal is going to be worse inherently. But Trump did that. And then he gave up any ambiguity over who's actually to blame once the Democrats even take over by saying, I'll shut it down. Now, how is that a good deal maker? It's not. That's a horrendous deal maker. That's somebody, though, who just wants to show how big his balls are. He just wants to show the base how much he's fighting. He just wants to create as much chaos as possible. And I think it'll work for his, his base. I think he will escape. Other people think that this wall thing is going to be the end of him. Bullshit. No, this is not going to be the end of him. From, from the base standpoint, they will forgive him for this because he looked like he was fighting and he will muddy the water enough. It, it doesn't take that much to muddy the water, especially with Colt 45. He will muddy the water enough as to who really is to blame. And, the, and, the, and the, the base, the cult, won't even think about the fact that he had two years to get his damn wall with a Republican House and a Republican Senate. And he didn't do it. He was even given a deal to do it. But he wouldn't do it. Well, he's not going to get his wall. But he also won't lose much support, if any support, over that. And that just shows where we are here and how incredibly difficult it's going to be to get rid of Donald Trump. Now, one of the um, more interesting things that happened with regard to the resistance to Trump, whatever that may still be within the Republican Party, is that Mitt Romney wrote an op-ed blasting Trump for lacking the character to be president of the United States. Now, there's nothing that he said in that op-ed that was remotely controversial to people that know Donald Trump. It's obvious. In fact, I actually thought Romney's criticisms were somewhat muted. But I was glad that he did it. It needed to be done. It showed, okay, he's coming to Washington as the new senator from Utah. This is, this is the tone that he's going to set. He's going to lay down the marker. And what happened in response? He got crushed. He got crushed from every possible angle, including his own niece, his own niece, who works at the Republican Party, and this was clearly a setup, his niece tweeted Trump's reaction to Romney with her own negative reaction to Romney, where she referred to her own uncle as a freshman senator, not even by name. This, You know what it felt like? You know that scene in The Sound of Music? where Rolf, the boyfriend of the oldest daughter, rats them out to the Nazis, blows the whistle as they're escaping, the Von Trapp family is escaping. Uh, that's what it felt like. That's what. It, that's where we are. I know, I know, oh, you're comparing Trump to Hitler. No, I'm comparing the mentality here to that of the Nazi party, where, where people are turning in their own families for... for Kyle Trump, what, what, what is happening? How did this, where, what the fuck is going on? This cannot be true, but it is. And, you know, in hour number two, Brad Thor and I talk about this, so I'm not going to belabor it too much, but I want to at least make the point here on the, on the news element of the podcast. The, the Romney moment is critical. The Romney moment 
is a foreshadowing to what is possible in the future. If the Republican Party was even remotely close to a situation where they might throw Trump under the bus, let's say after the Mueller probe is done, if that was true, the Romney op-ed would have been responded to vastly differently. It would have been responded to maybe with silence, like, hey, we're not going to agree with him because that would be too dangerous, but we're not going to attack him because he's right. And we want to hold our fire for what might happen in the future. That did not happen from any from anybody of importance within the Republican Party or what's left of the so-called conservative movement. I, I'm Senator Perdue from... Uh, from Georgia, of all places, ripped Romney uh, for, for doing this. He got ripped. Britt Hume, formerly a, a guy of, of honesty and character at Fox News Channel, ripped Romney. Now, why are formerly good people ripping people like Romney? Let me tell you, and this is important. It has nothing to do with what Romney said. They, they probably don't even disagree with Romney about Trump intellectually. They don't like it because it makes them feel badly about themselves. That's what this is about. It's all about themselves. Romney needs to be an asshole because if he's not an asshole, they're the assholes. They're the wimps. They're the people who got duped. They're the people who are allowing a dangerous con man to put this country in jeopardy. So therefore, that's not a possibility. No, 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 because they know their own goodness. Therefore, Romney's got to be the bad guy. I, I feel particularly uh, passionate about this because I have lived this. And I, I've used this example. I, I, I've mentioned this before, that I have this bet with a, a friend of mine who works for a very pro-Trump state-run media outlet who has bet me last year, and then I doubled the bet recently, that by the end of 2019, Trump will be removed from office. Uh, either he'll resign or he'll be impeached and, and uh, removed. And I said, no, 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 no. That ain't going to happen. And part of why I know this isn't going to happen is in a bizarre way, I have lived this story. And no one's going to fully understand what I'm talking about because I'm not, I'm not going to get into the details to prove the, the validity of the, the analogy. But in my fight for justice in the Penn State Joe Paterno, Jason Dusky thing, I've been in the role of Mitt Romney, <laughs> only w with far more consistency and, and with, uh, with far greater personal danger. And people that should have supported me, who knew I was correct intellectually and who were in a position to try to do something to help, by and large haven't done shit and oftentimes have criticized me publicly. Why? Not because I'm wrong. But because I'm right, and me being right makes them feel badly about their own cowardice. That's what this is about. It's about those people who are responding to Romney more than what it is that Romney said or what the truth is about Donald Trump. So you cannot lose sight of that. This is about those who are responding to it. It's not really even about Trump anymore. It's about how their position on Trump makes them feel about themselves, whether it's Britt Hume 
or whether it's Tucker Carlson or if it's a member of Cult 45, it's about them, not him. And there's no way that I can think of, because I'm not smart enough, if there was, I'd be happy to share it with you. If someone has it, please share it with me. There's no way to incentivize those type of people into coming to a conclusion about Trump that makes them feel badly about themselves, about their own character or lack thereof, their own lack of courage. So I, I, can, I, I have empathy for the Romney situation, only on a, on a far darker level. And I have seen this happen. And this is why you know I've, I've lost on Penn State, and it's why Romney's going to lose on Trump. Because there's no one to come to his aid. I've said this before. The death of John McCain, the death of Charles Krauthammer, the death of George Herbert Walker Bush and Barbara Bush, all of that has made it impossible for someone like Romney to get traction. Because in order to get traction, you need cover. And to get cover, you need help. You need other people like a John McCain. And if McCain was still alive, presumably Lindsey Graham, to come to your aid and stand with you at the press conference and say, hey, it's not just one guy who lost in 2012 and can be discredited because he's he's got, he's jealous. Fuck, what? Romney is not jealous of Donald Trump. I can assure you that. That's not what's driving him, and I don't think he's trying to maneuver himself for another presidential run, but morons can rationalize it that way. So we are in a, a, a situation now where it's kind of like the unstoppable force versus the immovable object. The case for impeaching and removing Trump is very likely to be an unstoppable force, but his cult is an immovable object. And the Republican Party on this is going to be an immovable object. And I wrote another column about this impeachment controversy that has exploded over the last couple of days because Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib or Talibab, I'm not sure how you say it, but she she said uh, you know, at, a, at a semi-private event that they're going to impeach the motherfucker. And, of course, you know, everyone clutched their pearls about this, which would be worthy of clutching your pearls prior to Trump. But Trump's a guy who has changed all the rules. Calling the president a motherfucker is, that's normal now. I mean, this is, that's the language that Trump uses. And this wasn't even done at a, at a overtly public event. So uh, so I wrote a column about why Democrats should not be afraid of impeaching Trump, even though he will not be removed. And that it, why it's the right thing to do. I'm, I'm sure this is one of many columns that I will write in this vein because it's an important point and a lot of history is being rewritten about, for instance, the legacy of the Bill Clinton impeachment. So if you're interested in that, please check it out at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. As far as the Russia investigation, and again, Brad Thorne and I talk a lot about this in hour number two, there was supposedly a a, a breakthrough on that front that would have been very key to Michael Isakoff's theory that the Steele dossier is not credible or not been validated, 
and that the collusion theory may not be true. And that involved Michael Cohen allegedly being in Prague during the summer of 2016 and his cell phone pinging off a cell tower outside of Prague. That was reported just after Christmas by McClatchy. And I wrote a column, and I get accused all the time of Trump derangement syndrome. It's amazing that my Trump derangement syndrome causes me to write about 40% of my columns saying that this, this story about Trump is not true or is unlikely true or this is not going to really harm Trump or that Trump's going to end up victorious here. It's amazing how that happens. It's almost like I don't really have Trump derangement syndrome. It's, I'm able to see things incredibly clearly because I, I remove my own personal feelings about situations and I look at the facts and I look at logic and I've been dead right almost every time when it comes to defending Trump on certain situations. I don't believe that story is true. Now, I don't know for sure how or why McClatchy blew it, but there's nothing, and I wrote this column, which again, you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. The story doesn't make sense. Largely because Cohen is still denying it. Now, I love the rationalizations by the pro-collusion people here. So wait a minute. So hold on a second. (laughs) Cohen, who has already pled guilty to lying to Congress, and has already made his plea deal and has already been sentenced and was not charged with lying to Congress about the Prague trip, which would have been a huge element to all of this. He's now going to lie now publicly, proactively on Twitter for no reason. Now, if he had stayed silent, I would have said, okay, maybe he told Mueller I lied about that too. And maybe they cut some sort of a deal and maybe they're trying to keep it on the down low because they don't want people to know that, that Mueller knows that that uh, Cohen went to Prague. I, I'm okay with that theory. It's plausible until Cohen proactively on Twitter says, nope, never been there. How the fuck does that make any sense? And the rationalizations are hilarious. Oh, maybe Mueller's telling him to lie. What? What? Hold on a second. I thought Mueller was Mr. Ethics. I thought he was Mr. By the Book Prosecutor. By the way, he wants to publicly destroy what's left of his key witnesses' credibility by having them lie needlessly? <laughs> he's not even doing an interview. It's not like someone's asked him on live television and he's stuck. He proactively went on Twitter and said this didn't happen. And so when, when, when that makes no sense, now I need a lot of evidence. And what's the evidence? There's not one on-the-record source. And the, even the sourcing, while well, supposedly there's four people... Not only don't, don't we have their names, we don't know their real backgrounds, their supposedly intelligence sources. The, the, two of them are, at least two of them, it sounds like, from, from my reading of the article, aren't even direct sources. They're secondhand. You know what secondhand means in a st- case like this? It means gossip. That's what that means, gossip. And there's a very real chance that this is about an echo chamber. I've seen it happen. I saw it happen in the Penn State case. Echo chambers are incredibly dangerous. People start to hear the same thing, and they think, well, it must be valid because I've heard it from more than one person. Well, no, you didn't because you're all in the same fucking echo chamber. And McClatchy is not exactly, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post. And interestingly, none of the other major media either picked up or made a big deal out of the story, which tells me they know there's a problem. That's what they're, that's what that tells me. So there's nothing about that McClatchy story that rings 100% true, although it is a oddly, weirdly specific that there supposedly was a cell, a t- cell tower ping on his cell phone. 
that's that's really very specific. There is a possibility. I underline this is purely hypothetical speculation on my part. But this sounds a lot like the Manafort met Julian Assange story that got reported back in November, which I think is, is incorrect. And I wrote at the time that I think it's incorrect. And, and that is this. I think it's possible that somebody is planting false stories that seem negative towards Trump that will later not come to fruition as to discredit the overall investigation. I think that is possible. It, 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 the only reason why I don't think it's necessarily possible is that it would indicate a level of competence not necessarily consistent with the Trump team because that would be really smart. But if you remember, the Bill Clinton team people did this during his impeachment to great effect. And they did this most specifically with regard to his own grand jury testimony. If you remember, like I do, because I have a very good memory and I was following this very carefully, before Bill Clinton's grand jury testimony was released to the public, there was a videotape of it, there were all sorts of reports. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, my God. He, br- he melted down. He got angry. He was terrible. It's going to be disastrous for the president. So everyone goes in with that expectation. And then it turned out he was totally calm. He was in control. He kind of kicked their ass. He, he, he was, uh, he, I mean, he lied, but he was doing so in a way that uh, was appealing to certain groups of people. And expectations are everything in life. So if, if people are expecting that, that Cohen was in Prague uh, meeting with the Russians and that, that Manafort was meeting with Julian Assange in Ecuador, and that all turns out to be bullshit, well, who, help, who, who does that help? That helps Trump. And I, my biggest concern about the whole Mueller situation right now is that we're going to find out for sure that Trump did a lot of very bad and illegal things, and it's not going to make an impact because our expectations are too fucking high. That's, that's where I am currently on the, uh, on the Mueller investigation. And as far as impeachment, I'm not sure that the Democrats are going to have the balls. I, I think it's a real con- conundrum on what to do here. And I think we saw that conundrum when I interviewed my good friend, Congressman John Yarmouth, who's now the chairman of the budget committee. You can check that out in a couple podcasts ago in hour number two there, which I just after the election, which I urge you to do because I made a very impassioned plea for him to change his mind about impeachment. And he basically said that he, I, I had almost succeeded. I don't know where he currently is now, but I think that the big conundrum is what does Nancy Pelosi want? Does she want to force Trump to do deals on her, on her terms or does she want to impeach him? My guess is that she's going to try to do both. She's going to try to get deals with him before impeachment, and then after she gets the deals, then she'll impeach. Because her base is going to demand impeachment. But is she going to be able to turn Donald Trump into Arnold Schwarzenegger? Which has always been a, a, a great fear of mine that's quite possible, especially given the fact that he's been a lifelong Manhattan liberal. But we'll see on that. Uh, a couple other points uh, before um, we uh, end this particular hour of the podcast, and I urge you to check out hour, hour number two with our guest, Brad Thor. Uh, this weekend, uh, a lot of important anniversaries for me. Uh, it's bizarre for me to think that uh, 15 years ago this weekend, I moved to Los Angeles, 15 years ago, to work at KFI uh, in Los Angeles, first as the late night host, then as the evening host. 
I have now lived in in the Los Angeles area. I no no longer live in Los Angeles. I've now lived in the Los Angeles area longer than any other place I've ever lived in my life, which is just mind-blowing. You know, first of all, when you think, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and so that's always going to be your hometown, right? Well, I've now lived in Los Angeles, of all freaking places, longer than I ever lived there, which is particularly bizarre considering that I had a very serious girlfriend in college who uh, um, was from the San Francisco area, whose dream it was to live in Los Angeles. And that was part of why we broke up, because she was dead set on living in Los Angeles, and I had no interest in living in Los Angeles. Well, she never ended up... Well, she did live in Los Angeles for a short period of time, but she's no longer living in Los Angeles, and I am, with two kids and a wife. (laughs) It's just bizarre. So that's off the charts, bizarre. Um, It's also the 10th year anniversary uh, of the death of my grandfather, who I was very close to. And what's somewhat interesting about that is that that occurred the day after another 10-year anniversary, which is that 10 years ago uh, this weekend, in fact, if you think about it in terms of days of the week, it would have been tonight, although date-wise it was a couple days ago, I was going up to Wasilla, Alaska in the middle of a snowstorm to do the most prominent and by far the most important interview that Sarah Palin ever did after the 2008 election. That was 10 years ago uh, tonight. It was a miracle that I even got into Alaska. (laughs) because Well, it was a miracle I got the interview because her people were so incompetent that I got told yes by her state people, then I got told no by her political people. I decided to ignore the political people and just pretend that the state people knew what they were doing. We, we scheduled this thing for a Monday morning, the first Monday, really, of the new year. She had done no major interviews, no extensive interviews about the election. She was essentially sequestered up in Alaska. She might as well have been on Mars as far as the mainstream news media was concerned. And everyone everyone wanted a piece of her because she was ratings gold. She was considered the future of the Republican Party. There was mystery surrounding her. And I somehow got the interview. (laughs) Uh, There was a snowstorm in Seattle where my connecting flight was. There was no chance of us getting out of Seattle that night. I have no idea how the flight even got out of there in the middle of the snowstorm. It got into uh, Anchorage, Alaska at, I don't know, like 2 or 3 in the morning. Uh, took an incredibly expensive cab ride to Wasilla. Got two hours of sleep with a bad head cold. Go over to Sarah Palin's house. It's minus 5 degrees. Her, her home is caked in ice in January in Alaska. And we did the best interview that Sarah Palin has ever done, period. And I will go to my death. I know I get a lot of criticism for this because, you know, I ended up being her biggest media defender for about a year and a half, two years after that, before then totally throwing her under the bus with a a column I wrote for the Daily Caller, which you can find online. I urge you to do so because the whole story is amazing, called The Sarah Palin I Know, where I I realized that this was going to be very bad for the Republican Party where she was taking this because she had totally sold out who she was after resigning as governor of Alaska in order to stay famous and become rich. And unfortunately, and I'm writing a column about this, which will be out uh, probably tomorrow morning, I really think, and I feel guilty about this, you can draw a pretty straight line from that interview that Sarah Palin did fighting back against the media coverage of her, which was truly unfair and largely inaccurate in 2008, And Trump's 
rise to power within the GOP and his entire fake news campaign, where now suddenly we've gone from legitimately criticizing unfair mainstream news media coverage to everything that the mainstream news media says is fake news, fake news, not true, don't believe your lying eyes, and that's wrong. And so, uh, and I think Trump understands this, and I think Trump has used it to his own advantage. It's much like (laughs) Donald Trump taking advantage of legitimate conservative concerns about uh, unfair media coverage is a lot like O.J. Simpson getting away with double murder because of the history of police racism against blacks in Los Angeles. The issue is real, but he's the last guy on the planet to be able to take advantage of it. Uh, but he did so in a huge way, wrote it to the presidency, and frankly, his presidency is being protected in large part by this whole thing. And it, and I, I really do believe at least part of it began with that interview uh, with Sarah Palin, which I urge you to check out on YouTube because uh, she's a totally different person than the one that was created by the news media or the one that she created herself. She she is, uh, she is created a completely different persona because she wanted to stay famous and get rich. And it really um, it was very disappointing to me because the real Sarah Palin was not dumb. She wasn't brilliant. I mean, she needed work on on policy details and that kind of stuff. But she had good instincts. She was a good person. She understood the conservative movement. She was no Tea Party conservative. She was no populist. She was a moderate Republican that was just willing to to lay it out there and obviously was very good looking and charismatic. The potential there was enormous, which, of course, is why she got destroyed. (laughs) Without the potential, the news media doesn't bother to destroy you, right? So the reality is that it's what I thought uh, 10 years ago this weekend was this great moment where I got this awesome interview and got put on every cable news channel and the, The View and The Today Show and everything else turned out to be a horrible chapter in my life. And more importantly, a horrible chapter for the Republican party and may have helped pave the way for Donald Trump. So that's partially my fault. Uh, A small portion of this uh, is my fault. uh, And I'll take uh, responsibility for that, but make sure you check out my column, which will be out on Monday about the uh, 10 years ago, uh, Sarah Palin interview. Uh, There were a couple other things I wanted to get to, but we've gone already too long in this particular hour. I will say that it is possible, underline possible, that you may be hearing some news about uh, this podcast changing pretty dramatically in the in the coming weeks. Uh, there has been an offer made to turn this into a different kind of podcast that would be internationally based and would be more uh, specifically Trump-focused, although we're mostly Trump-focused as it is now. Uh, the deal has not yet been signed. It ne- there needs to be some adjustments to it before I sign it, but that is, a, I think, a strong possibility for 2019, so make sure you pay attention to that. And as always is the case, I only ask really two things of you. Number one, please share this uh, podcast uh, via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And along those lines, make sure you do the same with our number two, our interview with Brad Thor. And number two, uh, do yourself a favor. If you're one of those people who sleeps at night and when you sleep, you uh, wear sheets or use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. 
coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are... Mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well... <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like... Mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.